0: I love that that was how the people responded. Amen, amen to the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rita and Jan, for sharing with us too about Street Youth Ministries. Um, That was actually my first job here at UPC was at SYM back in the early 2000s. And so it's a ministry that I care deeply about. It's important work. So glad you guys are hearing about it. And I do hope that you will look into getting involved. So, Pastor Aaron kicked us off last week with starting a sermon series called Reclaiming Your Joy, looking at how Christian joy, joy that's rooted in who God is, what God has done, and what God will continue to do, is an act of resistance against despair and its forces. And today we're going to look at how that kind of joy can be a strength and a protection for us. Pastor Aaron's been making these videos. Each week we'll hear a story about joy, a testimony about joy. If you haven't had a chance yet to see his conversation with Miss Alice Wilson, uh, grab a tissue first and then do that. Watch that video. It's a really—Miss Alice gives a really powerful testimony about the strength and security that can come from a life built on the joy of the Lord. And this is the testimony that we read about in Nehemiah 8. It's what we see in our text today. As Israel returned from exile to their city, a city that lay in ruins, they heard this good news. They heard this truth, that the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. Kevin already read the scripture for us this morning. I'm really glad that he read it and I didn't have to because he like nailed all of those names and uh, it would have taken me like my whole allotted time, I think, just to get through all of those. So as we prepare to dig back into this text and dig into Nehemiah 8, will you first uh, please join me in prayer? Lord, many years ago, your people gathered around your words to them because they wanted your words to speak to them. They wanted your words to help them rebuild their lives. They needed these words to be, to be food for them. We, your people, gather around your word this morning, wanting that same thing. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken, and we also ask that you would speak again. Holy Spirit, we are grateful that you are here among us. Do your work of stirring our hearts, of opening our ears, of opening our eyes, of softening our hearts. Lord, may you increase. May everything that we hear point to you. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to go back a little bit to Nehemiah 8 in our text. If you want to follow along, it's on page 379 in your Pew Bible. And before we dig into it, we actually want to do a little bit of context. I think the bigger story of what's happening in Israel's journey up until this point helps us understand their encounter, how they engage with with the law of Moses, with the scripture. So big picture context, God establishes the earth, creates humankind. We read in the first few chapters of Genesis, lots of things that happen God speaks to Abraham, a man. He speaks to him and he gives him a word of promise to build from him a great nation. So we go pretty quickly from one man and one woman in Genesis 1 to a great nation, descendants as numerous as the stars. These people, the Israelites, as their story goes on, they end up enslaved in Egypt. They spend about 400 years in slavery. The Lord hears their cry, has mercy on them, calls them out, rescues them, and parts the Red Sea so that they can walk through and establishes them in a promised land. Many of us through a verse are reading right now of that that's about to happen in the book of Numbers. They live, I had to look this up, I didn't know how many years Israel lived in the promised land, uh, about 800 So the the Israelites lived in the promised land for about 800 years. And if we read the rest of that story, we'll see the rise of priests and judges, kings and prophets. As we read their story of, of how they journeyed with the Lord, we'll see moments of faithfulness. We'll see moments of unfaithfulness. Overall, Israel struggled to stay faithful and keep the covenant or agreement that God had established with them. And as part of this, part of the consequence of this is that they were conquered by the Babylonians and they were sent into exile. They lived in exile for about 70 years. And now the moment that we're reading about in this text in Nehemiah 8 is when some of the remnant return from exile to their land to rebuild the temple and reestablish the city. So if you look back, uh, one verse back from where chapter 8 starts into the end of chapter 7, we read this. When the seventh month came, the people of Israel being settled in their towns, all the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. And they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the people of Israel, they rebuilt the city They reestablished the walls, they settled in their towns, and now they gather together at the water gate, and they ask Ezra to read them their story, the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses is this right here. Many of us are reading it right now through Immerse Beginnings. The Law of Moses is the first five books of our Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It's the, this was their Bible at the time, the story of God, God's revelation to them. This is what they picked up and read. And as you think about, I wanted to think about what exactly were they hearing that day? So if they were hearing from parts of these first five chapters of our Bible, what is it that they were hearing when Ezra opened up the Law of Moses? Moses. What's well, the big story that we just talked about, right? It tells the story of the formation of the universe, the earth, and its inhabitants. These first five books speak of the relationship between God and humankind with all its beauty and sin and redemption. Specifically for the Israelites, these five chapters are the story of God's movement among them. It tells the story of the establishment of a covenant— an agreement, a covenant that God formed with these people. And in this covenant, it says that God would be their God and that they would be his people. And God tells in this covenant of what he will do for his people and also what he is asking. He lays out, it's kind of a misnomer, right, the law of Moses, because it's not just about laws, although those are in there, but really it's about a way of being that God is inviting this community into. A way of being that will keep this community in right relationship with God, in right relationship with one another, and in proper healthy relationship with their surrounding community. Now we don't know exactly what parts of the book of the law of Moses that Ezra read, but I think it's worth noting, taking notes, that this remnant of people asked Ezra to read from this book. If you look at the text, it wasn't Ezra deciding this. It was the people of God wanting to hear these words. As they sought to rebuild their lives, this was their foundation. And it got me thinking, honestly, as I reflected about this, about my own relationship, my own desire and appetite for these words. It's worth all of us reflecting this morning about what is our relationship with these words? What role do they have in our life and in our faith? Are they part of our own foundation? Are they part of what we are building or rebuilding our lives on? You know, my, my, Chris, my boss, Chris Nichols, uh, made a comment that stuck with me. He said, when we were talking about spiritual disciplines, he said this. He said, let's all make, make time, make space every day for God to speak. Make time every day for God to speak. God speaks in many ways. This is one of the ways that God speaks to us. And so this is what we see Israel doing in this moment. They're saying, speak, O Lord, to us. So Ezra likely read for about six hours. It says, with men, women, and children, it says, from early morning to about midday. And lay leaders walked through the community to help all understand the message of what was being read. And as they hear the story of who God is, what God has done, and what their people have done, their response, the response of this community, is to weep. The second part of verse 9 says this, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now, there's probably some kids thinking, well, no wonder they wept. The guy was talking for six hours, right? <laughs> but I don't think that's why they wept. Why did the people of Israel weep? Why was that their response? I think perhaps partly because of the, it's, they wept because of the profoundness of who God is and what God had done for them. I often do this, right? I'm often overwhelmed. You're often overwhelmed when we think of the goodness and faithfulness of God in our lives. But likely, part of what was going on and what the text and the the larger context seems to say is that these people also were weeping in lament. They were weeping with sadness about what could have been if they had trusted and followed the way of God. They wept with conviction about their unfaithfulness in the story. In rebuilding the city, they were literally picking up the broken pieces of the mess that had been made by their ancestors for not following the way of God outlined in this good book. And so part of their weeping is lament with conviction and and the remorse that can come with that. And then as we read, Ezra and Nehemiah tell them not to weep, but to rejoice. And not just to rejoice, but to throw a feast, to drink the sweet, to eat the fat. A feast, have a feast that's filled with rejoicing. Ezra says in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Peace, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when I reflected on this text, I thought, man, that is quite a mood swing, right? From weeping to rejoicing, from lamenting to feasting. And it got me thinking, and I think where the Lord took me with this text and what I want to talk about during the rest of our time is to talk about both feelings and truth. What does this story tell us? What can we learn from the feelings that are here, the emotions that we see? And also, what's the word of truth that we, we hear? So let's start with feelings, because again, there's a lot of feelings in this text. There's certainly big feelings, from weeping to feasting. So what do we learn from these feelings? What do we do with the feelings that are present in this story? A couple weeks ago, I went to the Maverick City Music Concert. Um, anybody else here? Yes, I see some hands. So to your second homework assignment, the first is watch the video with Miss Alice and Pastor Aaron. The second is if you are not familiar with Maverick City music, become familiar with Maverick City music. It's really great music. They just released a new album. They always in their worship, they have got they have their primary worship leaders and then they always have a, a choir, a gospel choir that sings with them. Their most recent CD, they've, they recorded it in a prison and the choir are the inmates from that community. It's really powerful worship music. So, Maverick City Music. Uh, We were at their concert, and a gentleman named Anthony Evans, who's the son of Pastor Tony Evans, said this. He said, Our feelings should not be the engine of our life, but the caboose. So our feelings should not be the driver of our life. While feelings are real, Feelings are true. Talking about our feelings is very healthy and very important. Our feelings should not define reality or tell us what is true. Feelings are a God-given part of the human experience, but feelings do not have intellect. I heard it phrased this way recently, feelings are a word and a thought is a sentence. So what do I mean by that? I might call up my sister and say to my sister, I feel lonely, right? That's a word. But often what I do is I might call her up and say, I feel lonely because you have not called me, right? That's a thought. Feelings are a word, a thought is a sentence. Our feelings are real and true, but our feelings do not define reality. They're part of our God-given design, but they don't, and they are true and real but they don't tell us what is true and they don't define reality. Scripture teaches us this, right? Many places in Scripture, the Psalms in particular, model for us the freedom we have to express our feelings and emotions to God. But the Scriptures also encourage us, instruct us, invite us to bring our feelings to God, not let our feelings be our God. And sometimes... I, perhaps we, can let our feelings be God-like to us. And something that is God-like to us is an idol. So an idol isn't just a golden calf that we think of in those first stories, right? An idol is not just something we look to to worship. An idol is something or someone we look to to tell us what is true or what is true of us. An idol is something we look to to tell us who we are, what our purpose is, what our hope is in, to define our reality, and what we look to to order our world. We can do this with our job. We can do this with our money, in a relationship. We can do this with all sorts of things. And at times, our feelings can become this type of idol— We let them tell us what is true about ourselves, the world, our relationships, and about God. If we feel it, it must be true. But in this story, we read that there is a deeper truth and a more reliable reality than feelings. And that's the truth of who God is, of what God has done, and what God will continue to do. And this remnant of people who responded with weeping, show us what it looks like to find strength in a, in a reality and a truth that's greater than our circumstances and greater than our feelings. What the Israelites discover and are discovering is that this story that undoes them is actually the one that will save them. And that trusting that, trusting the one in whom all things hold together, trusting in Jesus, is a source of joy and a source of protection. This is the truth that Ezra declares. It's the truth that steps into their emotions. And it's this, the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. So I grew up in church. I also went to a lot of VBS times and sang a lot of times something about the joy of the Lord is your strength. So when I hear that phrase, I have like a lot of flashbacks of singing that phrase. And there's something about that phrase where when it's put to music, you don't just sing it one time, you like sing it on repeat right? So, does anybody else have memories of that? So, and I've never taken this phrase very seriously. I've never really, like, gotten it. Like, sure, it's a great thing. It's like a catchy phrase. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And so, I appreciated, selfishly, you guys might be, you, are, you might already know, you're way ahead of me. I appreciated the opportunity the last couple of weeks to dig into What is Ezra talking about? The joy of the Lord shall be your strength. So here's a couple of thoughts about that. So another way of phrasing it is this. The joy of the Lord shall be your protection. The joy of the Lord shall be a secure place for you to land. That's getting someplace for me. I don't know about you guys. but So it's not just strength like power. Although that's part of it, but the strength that they're talking about is strength like security. The joy of the Lord shall be your protection. The joy of the Lord shall be a firm place for you. The joy of the Lord is a secure place for you to rebuild your life on. So how? What's that connection between the secure place and the joy of the Lord? And there's two things. Because we can kind of play with some of, some of these words a little bit. There's the joy of the Lord and there's taking joy in the Lord. And I want to dig into both of those a little bit. So first, Ezra tells us that we can take joy in the Lord, in who he is, in what he has done and what he will do. We can take joy in letting this reality God's reality being the engine of our life and being what we build our life on, even in the midst of changing feelings about it. And again, the Psalms show us what this could look like. Psalm 55, I am distraught. My heart is in anguish, but I call to the Lord and the Lord saves me. Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God. I will praise Him, my Savior, and my God. Maybe I'll add a third homework assignment that we spend some time this week in the Psalms and let them model for us how we have space to express our feelings and how we're called to this deeper hope and deeper truth and a deeper opportunity to experience joy that doesn't come from our circumstances, but joy that comes from trust in who God is. We take joy in the Lord because of an unshakable awareness And trust that we possess good from God. The Israelites can take joy in the Lord because while they heard in the reading of the law of Moses the story of their unfaithfulness, they also heard of the abiding faithfulness and goodness of God to them. The abiding faithfulness and goodness of God shall be a secure place for them to build their life. And we're invited to have joy because the abiding faithfulness and goodness of God can be, is, a sure place for us to build our life. So we can take joy in the Lord. We are also beneficiaries of the joy of the Lord. So as the joy of the Lord goes beyond our feelings, it also goes beyond the feelings of God to the character of God. So part of the character of God is joy. Part of the character of God is taking delight and joy in his creation, in his children. The Lord does not just tolerate you or just tolerate me. The Lord doesn't just put up with you or me. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I believe that whispered lie that the Lord just tolerates me. And that's not true. The Lord takes joy in you and in me. Zephaniah 3:17 says it's this, this way: "The Lord your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The Lord takes joy in his children. The Lord takes joy in you and in me. And this character of joy, this sureness of his delight, is a protection for us. It strengthens us. It is a secure place to be. And based on the security of this, this is why Ezra can say, feast, celebrate, rejoice, share your wealth with others, be generous. We see this theme of justice in here. Share with those who do not have. Trust this truth, trust this reality, trust this way. This community of people was a remnant. They were rebuilding a broken city. They were staring at the pieces, the consequences of going away from the way of God and grieving this, lamenting this. I wonder what it will look like for them to rebuild their lives. What kind of strength would it take for them to reestablish this city? What kind of faith and trust will it take for them to stay in this story and trust themselves to the way of God? I think perhaps with these challenges in mind, it's with these challenges in mind that Ezra asked them to move from weeping and lament to feasting and joy. Because weeping won't sustain them for what's to come, but joy in and the joy of the Lord will. It will strengthen them for what's ahead. I don't know all the details of your life and I'm not sure what you are facing where you could use some strength this morning. But I imagine each of us have something. Each of us have a situation that we are trying to muscle through. And for some of us, perhaps many of us, what you are facing might feel as big as rebuilding a city. Some of us are likely rebuilding our faith. Some of us are likely rebuilding a relationship rebuilding a life. Perhaps the strength we need this morning is just the strength needed to stay in this story, to trust this way, to trust and believe the goodness of God in a world that stirs us to doubt. Perhaps you need the strength to stay faithful, not because you have to, but because we are invited to. We are invited into a relationship with the God of the universe who delights in us and whose way leads to true flourishing. Again, I don't know everything going on with everyone, but I imagine we all need this sort of strength in some way this morning. We need a word a confidence and a word of hope that comes from the knowledge that the Lord rejoices over us with singing. One thing that I was struck about in this this encounter that the Israelites had at the Watergate is that they heard the word of the Lord, and then they had space to respond. And I want us to have some of that space to respond this morning. I'm going to read kind of a summary of the words that Ezra speaks, and then I've asked Chris to come up and just lead us in a time of prayer and reflection. And as I read them, I want you to consider what is the Lord saying to you this morning. Be at peace, do not weep, for there is joy in who the Lord is, in what the Lord has done, and what the Lord will do. The maker of heaven and earth, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the God who formed your inmost being and knows every hair on your head rejoices over you with singing. May this be your strength. May this protect you. May this be a secure place for you to stand.